This is the last Sunday after Pentecost, and it can be either called the last Sunday after Pentecost <laughs> or the Feast of Christ the King. Uh, in the Episcopal Church, if you don't want to call it the Feast of Christ the King, you don't have to. However, the collect that Father Emerson sang at the beginning, the opening prayer, is the collect for Christ the King on the last Sunday after Pentecost. Roman Catholics, Episcopalians, and Lutherans observe Christ the King. It is not an ancient feast. It was, to use the terminology of the Roman Catholic Church, promulgated by Pope Pius XI in 1925, and who was in power in Italy in 1925? Benito Mussolini. So Pope Pius XI was concerned, perhaps, that there might need to be some statement by the church about where the ultimate authority resides for Christian people and uh, who exercises kingship, to use that language, over faithful Christian people, and it is Christ. And so he wished now that we observe this moving forward. So I thought this Sunday I'd preach on authority, what it means, some ways of understanding it, what Episcopalians understand by the idea of authority, what I think in our culture presently uh, is what exercises authority, and then to say some things about the gospel, which is fairly well known, about the sheep and the goats, and about looking after those who uh, are hungry and thirsty and uh, need to be uh, looked after in one form or another, and what Jesus meant when he spoke this parable, which might surprise you and it might annoy you, but be that as it may. We need to say something about what it means. Uh, in Latin, there are two words for authority, at least two. One is auctoritas, which means the weight of the evidence. And the other one is imperium. And imperium is a word that means they have the right to be obeyed. So how would we understand what that might mean? Well, the police uh, have exercise imperium. But in auctoritas terms, sometimes maybe you don't always have to obey the police if you weigh the evidence, if they're going to tell you something to do something that you, you know is illegal or not proper. You don't do that. But in the Episcopal Church, we have a standard for the weight of the evidence. So Episcopalians, when they say what is authoritative in their life and understanding as Christian people, they would say three things, the Bible, the Holy Scripture, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And this is sort of the center for how we understand our, um, what is authoritative in our life. And I think you can get from that that, you know, coming to a mature faith has something to do with the idea of allowing those things to have full play uh, in our hearts and minds as we live and are on pilgrimage. Remember always that Jesus has invited each one of us to follow him on the way. 
And so when we receive that invitation, it sort of assumes, I think, that it's kind of an unfinished process initially. And we walk with the Savior. We're on pilgrimage with the Savior. And we come as we live a life of intention about those things to a deeper and fuller knowledge of Jesus' and God's purpose for us as we live our lives. Matthew's Gospel. This is a famous one, so I'll give you some, um, a little ancient Near East agrarian insight. Sheep and goats are different. I mean, from us, for sure. <laughs> but if you herd sheep and goats together, when it comes nighttime... Uh, you need to separate them because the sheep are hardy. They can live outside. They have wool, coats. And goats are delicate. And they have to go inside when night comes and it gets cold. And so uh, a person listening to the Savior speak this parable would understand this simile because they would see in their own experience how the sheep and the goats are separated. I'm sort of sort of unfortunate, isn't it, that all the goats get put on the left and the sheep on the right, so the, the, the goats are going to get it in the neck here, since this is a parable about judgment. More about that in a minute. So, the Son of Man, who some say Jesus was referring to himself, is going to engage in some process of separation. And those who go on his right hand are going to be part of the kingdom, and those on the left are not, and they're going to be discarded. And we may need to ask the question, who, who's who, here, as we move forward about that. So then, Jesus has the king saying this about... Um, telling us, it, this is the great passage that preachers preach about in terms of looking after people, isn't it? What you should do. What, what is at the heart of the Christian faith and life? And God forbid if we should ever forget that. So, sick and visited, prison and visited, hungry and fed, no clothing, being clothed, all of these sorts of things. This is what we need to do. But here's what Jesus means. Remember, I've said this to you many times. When you interpret the parables of Jesus, there are at least three levels that you have to interpret them by. What did Jesus mean when he spoke it? What did Matthew, in this case, mean in his community when they reproduced the parable? And what was going on in their own communities? And finally, does this parable have any application to anything that we do in our own lives or not? So this is a parable of separation, and when Jesus speaks the parable, he is speaking about a principle that would have been widely known in the ancient Near East. It's called the Shaliach principle. The Shaliach principle means if you reject the messengers, you have rejected the sender of the message. And so Jesus is speaking about the disciples who have gone out on the missionary journey and have been rebuked by the people. 
not fed, not clothed, not visited, nothing. And his view is, if that's the case, it's going to go hard on you if you haven't listened. Now, you know, I think in every age, uh, all of us know what the right thing to do is, really. It's just the big conundrum, isn't it, that what Paul says turns out to be truer and truer all the time, and that is, the thing you want to do, you don't do, and the thing you don't want to do, you do. Right? It's sort of like how we live our lives. We, we all know what the right thing to do is. We got to talking about this in the sermon discussion group, and I should mention this because I say, say it from time to time. Uh, when we speak in the Episcopal Church about the fall, you know, the fall of mankind or humankind uh, in the Garden of Eden, symbolically, the story in the Garden of Eden is how did we get ourselves into this situation. In the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, uh, the view uh, became, at the fall, human beings blew it. Blew it. There is no way back. We are lost There is nothing that we can do ourselves to get back. It is only by God's grace, it is only by the sending of his son to redeem us that this situation has been clicked back into place. But we are incapable as human beings as the result of the fall to even know the good. The Catholic view is, at the fall, human beings lost their supernatural endowment. But they were able still to know the good. Their human reason and experience was not so flawed that they were incapable of doing that. Sometimes, you know, human experience and history would sort of uh, speak against that, don't you think? Well, I don't know what it is about human beings sometimes. It seems Edwin Friedman, who was not a Christian, he was a rabbi, said something, he referred to it as perversity. And that you and I don't take into full account the role of perversity in the cosmos, floating around, as we think about human behavior. But when we think about this, I prefer the last version that I explain, or I should say Episcopalians, as is typical of them, drove right down the middle. Many were deeply influenced by the continental reformers, and many who had the Catholic tint said to themselves, you know, we just, I just can't, this, this is too tough. And it doesn't make sense to me. So we need to sort of have a kind of, you know, middle view on this matter, which is probably the best thing to say about it. So when we speak about God's judgment, the sheep and the goats, listening to the word of God, 
How do we understand it? Judgment is going to be one of the themes in Advent. Episcopalians, or at least in this church, we don't talk a whole lot about the judgment of God. There are a lot of Christians who believe there, there is, needs to be more said about that. When I was the rector of Christ Church Sausalito, I had somebody come out the door one day and said, you don't make us feel guilty enough. <laughs> I want to hear about more about being a miserable sinner. <laughs> they were absolutely dead serious. And some do. N.T. Wright, one of the great biblical scholars uh, alive, he's the former bishop of Durham in England and now is at the uh, University of Edinburgh. He says, you know, maybe the way to think about judgment isn't in absolute terms. Like we get to a day, we die and go to God and it's either post-mortem bliss or right? But maybe we need to understand since he would be a great proponent of understanding that when Jesus uses the word kingdom of heaven, when he uses the word the kingdom of God, he means something here, not somewhere else we go in order to experience these matters. And so helping people, feeding the hungry, visiting the, the, the prisoner and the sick, clothing the naked is something we do here, bringing immediately present the values of the kingdom and listening to its centrality in our common life together. But as all this happens to us, the judgment remains with us all the time. It's always coming towards us. When I was a kid, my grandparents used to say, you know, I believe some people make their own hell on earth. You ever heard anybody say that? And it's true, isn't it? There's a lot of stuff where the judgment is coming to you and you just simply, uh, to use the therapeutic language, make poor choices. Or you somehow perversely believe that you're the center of the universe and this is going to be okay. That is what has authority in our culture today. I make my own reality. The triumph of the autonomous self. Why in the world would even serious news stations like MSNBC spend any time at all on Kim Kardashian, <laughs> who is the triumph of the autonomous self, writ large in this culture? And there is an enormous amount of play here, huge. So you even get somebody like Lawrence O'Donnell talking about Kim Kardashian. Or Chris Matthews talking about Kim Kardashian. Or whoever those people on Fox News are talking about <laughs> Kim Kardashian. Right? A perfect example. I, 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 me, me, me. And so we know that in some way that kind of behavior brings to us some kind of a judgment. We need now to uh, change the direction where, of where we're looking for happiness. That's what repentance means, by the way. It means turning around and looking in a different way. So think about that. You know, most of us, as I said earlier, know what the right thing to do is. We mostly know. But we don't do it. 
So it isn't something that was beyond our grasp or reach or abilities. And yet we know at the same time there are things about the human character that remain in every person that makes us capable of always an increase in generosity, the ability to take others more seriously, the desire at the very least to bring health and wholeness to our relational life, which is very important for our spiritual maturity. Edward Schweitzer, one of the great biblical scholars, a German biblical scholar, I don't quote him much, but in the 20th century he wrote a great commentary on the gospel according to St. Matthew. And he said about this particular passage, because of my desire to be obedient, to listen to that will and purpose, I can accept the kingship of Christ, not through coercion, threats, or promises, not from regard for ourselves, whether conscious or subconscious, but with spontaneous sympathy that regards only the other person's good. See if that's something you might want to try this week. Amen.